Open your Bibles again to the book of Ecclesiastes, this time again to chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to tell you what a blessing it's been to have interacted with so many of you, even last night and this morning, about your understanding and love for uh, the sovereignty of God. And I just was telling Eric this morning, it's very unusual to have a group of high school students who understand, know, and love theology like you guys do. And it is pure joy to be able to interact with you on these things. There's a problem, though. Once you talk about God's sovereignty, you have a lot of people saying, yes, but. Hang on, let's think about this. Now, I don't know if you thought Solomon was silly, foolish, or just plain stupid. But he knew the kinds of questions we would ask right in the face of understanding that God is absolutely sovereign, in control over every element of his universe. So we stopped last night in verse 15. Beginning in verse 16, he begins to answer the objections that people would have to God's sovereignty. Now, there's a classic problem. I want to teach you a theological word this morning that is important. And you've probably thought about it, whether or not you could name it or not. It's the problem called theodicy, not theology, theodicy. Now, theodicy is the, the grappling of the idea of a good God, a sovereign God, and an evil world. How do you put those two together? Now, I'm going to ask you to explain this little problem to each other during your small groups. So listen very carefully. It's very simple. It's, a, it's syllogistic. Now, you have three propositions, okay? Now, the classic philosophical theodicy says you can have two of them, but you can't have all three. Number one, God is good. Number two, God is sovereign. Number three, evil exists. Now, the classic problem says you can have two of those, but you can't have all three. For example, you can say God is good, but he's not sovereign. He doesn't have all control. Therefore, what? That's why evil exists. Or you could say God is not good, but he is all powerful. That's why evil exists. Or you can say, yes, God's good. Yes, God's powerful. But guess what? Evil doesn't exist. There's a whole uh, group called Christian scientists who believe that. Wouldn't you like to just punch them in the nose and say, then what was that if you don't believe evil exists? So you understand those three issues? I have to edit that tape. Um, God is good. God is all powerful or sovereign. Evil exists. Now, the question is, which one of those are you going to give up? The classic philosophical problem says you got to throw one of those out. The Bible says you got to keep all three and add one more. Yes, God is good. Yes, God is sovereign, all-powerful. Yes, evil exists, but he's also infinitely wise and works it all together for his glory and the good of those who love him. You're not going to live very long before you recognize that evil does exist in the world. It's a cruel, mean, broken, unfair, and immoral world that you live in. We've even ruined the whole idea of news. News used to mean what's happening. Now it just means what happened that was bad. Our grandparents lived with Hitler. Our great-grandparents and their parents lived in a civil war. Go back a little further, you've seen kings executing their wives for having girls rather than boys. You can go further back and see 
crusades held in the name of Christ and killing each other. How do you live in a broken world? How can you navigate a broken universe? Solomon understands that to deal with God's sovereignty leaves you asking questions. So what he does, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prevent you thinking about them for very long. I'm going to go ahead and answer them myself. Let's look this morning then at six objections to God's sovereignty. Six objections to God's sovereignty. Some of these you've no doubt thought. Others of them you'll say, well, yeah, that's true, but I didn't think about it. Solomon actually begins to provoke us and say, I know that I just taught you God's sovereign, but I also want you to think about the objection so you have an answer, not just to the world, but an answer to your own heart. If God is in control, then why is there injustice, death, oppression, competition, rivalry, loneliness, disregard? If he's really in control and he could do something other than let these things happen, why why do they exist? Let's look at his answer. God is sovereign. Every one of our points, we're going to say God is sovereign, but. And we're going to answer it with Solomon. God is sovereign, number one. God is sovereign, but there is injustice in the world. God is sovereign, yes, but there's injustice in the world. How do we reconcile that? Look at chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun, and remember that term under the sun means this side of the garden and this side of heaven, life in a broken world. I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice, there's actually wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. If God really is in control, then why is there injustice? Why do unfair things happen? Why does life not work out like all the cop shows on television where the good guys usually win and the bad guys usually get it in the end? The point Solomon's making here is that not only is there injustice in the streets, there's actually injustice in the courtroom. A few years ago, I read um, in the... um, Time magazine about a a girl from India. She entered her arranged marriage. Remember, she had never met this guy before. She enters into this arranged marriage. Her new husband was not pleased with her family's dowry of a refrigerator, furniture, and other household goods because it did not include a motorcycle. So in retribution, the husband brought in, this is the first day they were married. He brought in three of his friends with him on their wedding night and they took turns raping her. Remember, she'd never met this guy before this, this, this time. That's bad enough. But then it went to court and the local court determined this. The man will face no punishment. How can we handle a world like this and really believe God, God's in control? You ever see unfair, unjust things happen all around you? The right question is, how can this happen if God really is in control? Well, the answer is really in verse 17. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed there is, is there? Note the word every. Nothing will ever escape God's notice 
God's scrutiny and God's judgment. You can take whatever measure you're able, as long as you don't violate God's word to make justice happen on this planet. And we should. We should stick up for the poor. We should stand for justice. We should do what we can. But even when justice miscarries, still understand God is sovereignly on the throne, not only as the king, but also as the judge. We should try to promote justice. But when unfairness happens, we need to remember that God is still going to settle it all. That's why the Bible continually reminds us to leave judgment and vengeance to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, you can look this up later. Deuteronomy 32, verses 35, 39, and 43 all say, Vengeance is mine, says who? The Lord. Just remember, good guys might indeed finish last. The bad guys go to hell. It's not about good guys winning. It's about rescuing bad guys. Because you know what? All of us are there. Anytime we see that God is just and will right all the injustices, we have to immediately stop and pause and say, am I ready to meet that judge? I won't ask for a show of hands, but if I said, how many of you have been unfair in your dealings with others? You'd all raise your hand. How, some of you raise your hand anyway. I'm not going to ask. <laughs> we have some honest people. I'm raising both hands, Rick. I got my feet in the air. Break dancing with everything up and like Eric. Everybody has been an, an applier of injustice. We've all sinned. And we'll all face God because of that. And everyone who's done something unjust will face God because of that. Either being judged by him in hell forever or being judged by him in the person of Christ so that the punishment that we deserve is taken away from us. God is sovereign, but, but injustice is all over in the world. Trust God's justice then. Trust his justice. And remember, his timetable doesn't work like ours. There's another objection in verses 18 to 22. God is sovereign, number two, but, and here's the big one, but there's death. God is sovereign, but there's death. He has all power and he's good to make death not happen, but there's still death. Come on, God, couldn't you figure this thing out? Verse 18. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts is the same. What's that fate? As one dies, so does the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there's no advantage for a man over the beast for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust. All will return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. I've seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? What's that about? Well, Psalm 139 verse 16 reveals a humbling reality. God has numbered, ordained our days, and even knows, as we learned last night, the day of our death. 
The question is not if you're going to die. The question is when you're going to die. Everyone will die. There was a funeral director, a mortician, who used to sign all of his letters, eventually yours. Death is the great leveler. You can't escape it. All the vitamins, health clubs, facelifts, best doctors, latest Tybo classes. Nothing will stave off the inevitability of death. And King Solomon's point here is that we will all return to the dust. Get this, just like animals. We're no more powerful against death than an animal. It doesn't mean that we're no more dignified than an animal. It just means just as they die, we will die also. But we're far different from the animals in that we, after our death, will face our creator and our judge after death. Verse 21 in the Hebrew is not a question. I'm not sure if it is in the ESV or not. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast descends downward to the earth. You know what he's saying? When a beast dies, when an animal dies, that's it. It goes out of existence. It doesn't go to heaven or hell for how it acted, unless it's a cat. And all cats go to hell. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Now, <laughs> I can say that. Not only do I hate cats, I'm allergic to cats. Violently allergic to cats. And you know what? Cats are... How many of you have cats? I'm so sorry. They're the most stuck-up creatures. They deal with you on their terms, right? And there's a certain personality that's a cat lover that I'm not going to go into right now. <laughs> then there's dog lovers. You got some dog lovers? Yeah. yeah. Just dogs are great. You can beat them up and they still come back. My brother painted my brother painted our Labrador retriever orange with, with oil-based paint and he just came back. <laughs> just, they, they, they're just great. Still. There is no hell, there is no heaven for animals, but there is for man. He goes upwards. The image is he goes up to God to face judgment. The question of this is, are you ready to die? Three S's. Write these down if you can. Sin, substitution, submission. Sin, substitution, submission. This is what you need to reconcile as you face the reality of death. Sin. Have I, is my sin taken care of or am I going to pay for it with a holy God who's going to judge me? I'm going to go up where my soul is after death to meet God. Am I ready to meet him? Has my sin been taken care of? Second word, substitution. Or have I received God's substitute to receive the wrath of God and the punishment of God for my sins in my place on the cross in Jesus Christ? who died and was resurrected to give us hope for life and freedom from death. Sin, substitution, but a third word, submission. It's not enough to want your sins to be taken care of. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is your substitute unless you submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a lot of heavy-duty stuff this week. The most basic thing that all of us need to ask is, am I ready to die? If you're ready to die, you've received Christ. You understand the gospel. 
if, if death is such a fearful reality for you because you don't know, you can't answer the question why you should go to heaven or why you should go to hell. It's a good place to be this week because there are people who can tell you how to embrace the Savior. No one goes to heaven because they were good enough. No one goes to heaven because they were good enough. You can never be good enough. Only Christ was good enough. And His good enoughness is His righteousness, which He gives us when we believe the gospel. Yes, there's death. But you know what's good news? For the Christian, death is just a hallway you walk through to heaven. That's it. Death is a hallway. And you walk through it and you go into heaven. For some, that hallway is longer than others. Long bouts with long illnesses. For others, it's short. Death is still just a hallway to heaven for the believer. Or it's an elevator that drops you into hell. Number three. God is sovereign, yes, but there's oppression. Where is God when all this nasty stuff is happening on the planet? Verses one to three of chapter four. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun in our broken world. And behold, guess what? I saw the tears of the oppressed and I saw that no one was there to comfort them. On the one side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still living. Better off than both of them as the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is under the sun. I remember when I was preaching this to our college group a few years ago, and I came to these verses, and I'm looked at, looking at this, and listen to this. As a preacher, you're looking at this verse, it's better off that I would not have existed. Now, if you're a preacher looking for a verse to preach on, <laughs> this is not one raising his hand saying, hey, you can pick me. I'd like to be preached on Sunday. But I'll suggest this is an amazing reality that has tremendous, wonderful, and joyful truth in it. What is he saying? Life is often depressing, frustrating, painful, exasperating. This is very true for me as a pastor. What do I tell a woman who finds out that her husband has cheated on her and now has the AIDS virus? Or a friend of mine who lost his fiancée in a car wreck one week before their wedding day. Or another friend who lost her pastor husband in a car wreck with small children. Solomon looks around his kingdom and while he had the resources to party and enjoy life, there were still a vast amount of people who were living in oppression underneath employers, physical disease, grief. They were just being knocked down and beaten down day after day. So in verses 2 and 3, his point is not that suicide is the answer. But that being outside of this life is better than being inside of this life. Because we live in a world stained by sin. Only though, if your eternity is settled. Paul said, I mean, think about about having this perspective. He told the Philippians, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And then he argues with himself. He says, you know what, I'd, I'd I'd rather die and be with Christ, but... To go on living means fruitful labor. And I'm, I, man, I'm hard-pressed. I don't know which one I should do. 
Have you ever looked forward to being in heaven as a believer so much that you actually stopped to say, man, what should I do? Should I, should I just give my life up and go to Sudan where I'm guaranteed to be killed as a martyr and go be heaven? That'd be great. Ah, oh, but I should probably stay and be fruitful. Oh, which one do I want to do? The only person who does that kind of thinking is a person who's excited about heaven and has that reality settled. Have you ever felt, though, that the only answer to all of life's depression and oppression is God and God himself? If you haven't felt that way, you're going to get there eventually. That's where Solomon's going to end up at the end of this book. Remember Psalm 33? I love Psalm 73, rather. Psalm 73 is an interesting psalm. It's about a guy named Asaph. And Asaph is looking around at all his friends, and they're going out and they're partying. They're, they're having uh, uh, wild, uh, drunken uh, parties. They're having sex indiscriminately. They're enjoying life. And he looks at them and he gets jealous. He says, man, that's, I'm trying to live righteously, and I'm fighting my sin, and this is, I'm not getting the fun that they're getting Do I really want to keep doing what I'm doing? And then verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 73, this is what he said. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. Yes, there's oppression, but you can take your grievances to God. His sovereignty is still at work even in oppressive, depressing situations outside of your life and pressing on your life. Number four. This seems like a weird one, but you'll understand what Solomon means when he begins to explain it. Yes, God is sovereign, but there's competition. You say, competition? That hasn't ever been a a threat to my understanding of the sovereignty of God. Oh, I bet it has. You just haven't called it competition. Look at verse four. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand is full of rest. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. What is he saying? Well, it's a contrast here going on between heaven and earth. One of the characteristics of earth is that we fight each other and we're competing with each other all the time in subtle and in profound ways. It's always the pride of life that wants us to step on someone else's head to get ahead. Solomon understood this. He understood that it was a cutthroat mentality. All of us have experienced that. We've experienced it in the classroom, work, family, friendships, sometimes even in the church. There's a twinge of sarcasm In Solomon's voice here, in these three verses. Verse 5, he even idleness and laziness, which should exclude us from competition, brings no satisfaction and no meaning. Verse 6, rest in this context has nothing to do, has actually has everything to do with being content in the rat race. Just rest. Rest is available if you just won't look at other people as means to your end. Ultimately, what drives our competitive hearts is selfish ambition, pride, and jealousy. You know what it is? It's the monster called 
comparison that can eat you alive. I bet every one of us has experienced that already even in this camp. We compare deeds, looks, even someone wearing the team colors that are closer to our wristbands than us. And there's comparison. We're always comparing. And comparing leads to competition. And what happens when you're vying with each other competitively is you forget that God is sovereign and He looks at you individually. Don't be jealous. Why is this an issue regarding God's sovereignty? Because if all is preordained and planned out, then we have to wonder why everyone is so worked up about positioning and about winning. The first will be last. And last, first. That's one simple statement that means everything will be even with God in the end. So are you living for God and His justice and His judgment? Or are you living for the eyes of the people around you? Only someone who's convinced of God's sovereignty looks to Him and to Him alone and lets the world just exist. Number five, now we're going to get close to home. God is sovereign, but there's loneliness. Loneliness. This is um, verses 7 to 12. Let me just give you an overview of that. I looked again at the vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with his riches, and he, he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, one will lift his, his companion. But woe to the one who falls, and there's, there's not anyone to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, to, and they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. There's a lot of Hebrew metaphors in there. Let me just sum it up. What he's saying is, it's better to be with someone than to be alone. In marriage, yeah, but also in friendships. God is sovereign, but there's loneliness. What about this loneliness? It's the logical extreme from escaping competition, isolation. If your life is consumed with making it, then you'll probably do it alone. Verse 8 is a sad but all too common story of success. You get to the top only to be able to share all of your successes with no one. Verse 9, friendship provides help. Verse 10, friendship provides encouragement and comfort. Verse 11, friendship provides protection. Verse 12, friendship provides strength. God is sovereign. But who are your friends? Choose your friends wisely. My life is so blessed with good friends. I can't imagine choosing loneliness and isolation. A person who refuses friends is a prideful person. 
A person who refuses friends is prideful. That loner isn't a loner because of great accomplishments. That loner is a loner because, because of pride. What kind of friend are you? What kind of friendship do you extend? What kind of friends do you choose? You want me to tell you what you're like? I can tell what you're like if you'll just tell me your three best friends. And I could spend a day with each of them and then I'll know what you're like because you choose friends like yourself. What does that say about our spiritual peer pressure that we ought to be having on each other? Verse, um, excuse me, number six. God is sovereign, Solomon, but there is disregard. What do you mean by disregard? Look at verses 13 through 16. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he's come out of prison to become king, even though he is born in his kingdom. And I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Let me just put it in our vernacular. God is sovereign, but it seems like nobody cares. You ever felt like that? Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're one of those popular people. I, I used to be jealous of those, those kids when I was in school. Seemed to have it all. and it just seemed like nobody ever cared about me. I mean, I was the president of the Nobody Likes Me, Everybody Hates Me, Think I'll Eat Some Worms Club. I, I, but the truth is, everybody, everybody feels that way, even the people who are quote-unquote popular. You just feel like nobody cares. Even the king felt like nobody cares. Disregard. The only answer to that is to look back up to God's sovereignty. The view from the top is not as good as the climb. The most disillusioned people I've ever known are the ones at the top. I was in New Zealand a few years ago and preaching at a camp. There was a man I met who was so rich that he was actually buying islands, entire islands. I preached a sermon about contentment and he came up to me and he said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, I need help because I am, this is a quote, I am absolutely miserable. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, I have no hope to offer my children. I've given them everything they ever wanted and they're still becoming as unhappy as I am. Solomon notices the humbling reality that the people you are popular with are inevitably fickle in verse 15. They'll they'll go from one lad to another lad and whoever's most popular is who people will throng to. Are you seeking popularity or are you seeking peace with God? The only way to navigate this broken world is with an experienced guide. And that's the conclusion Solomon makes in chapter 5. We won't go into chapter 5 at our camp, but I encourage you to read it maybe today. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. In other words, come into God's house to find perspective, balance, and direction that you need. 
we must face the reality that this world is broken and will never take us where we want it to go. But we can find life, not just under the sun, but above the clouds with the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever question the sovereignty of God in any of these areas? How can you change your response based on Solomon's conclusions? God is sovereign, but... Here's your assignment. God is sovereign, but... And you fill in the blank of what bothers you the most, what challenges you the most, what stretches you the most. God is sovereign, but... Because I can promise you this. It's not as big a problem and a deal as this problem. God is sovereign, but he killed his son in the place of anyone who would believe. No matter what your little objections are, my objections are to God's sovereignty, nothing comes with as much gravity as that question. Would you bow with me for a moment? We went really quickly over this this morning for a specific reason. I want you to get the big picture and not get tied down in the details. And the big picture is really simple. God is sovereign, but we have objections. Can you identify your objections to God's sovereignty? And are any of those objections as profound as the fact that God is sovereign, good, all-powerful, but still allowed the great evil of His Son being crucified for sin. Keep thinking deeply about God's sovereignty. Keep pressing the questions because there's answers. God and His Word are very capable of scrutiny. And you can't ask anything that it won't answer. But it takes work, hard work and submission to receive the answers. Father, we all have objections to your sovereignty, emotional ones, logical ones. Solomon gave us some And we've met some of those in our own heart, but we also have others. Give us perspective, confidence, and hope because you are sovereign and you do care even when we care about the wrong things. Lord, I pray especially today that in the discussions the students will have with each other that some would come to embrace Christ receive Him as Lord and submit to Him. That their sin would be taken care of because of the substitute who is Jesus and they would submit to Your Lordship. We turn now to give You the worship You deserve in our singing. Be high and lifted up in our hearts. Help us to draw a circle around ourselves and only allow You in to receive glory and worship. In Jesus' name, Amen.